I remember very strongly on the referendum night about three o'clock in the morning when it was clear that Leave were going to win, thinking to myself that this was the world that I grew up in versus the world in which I lived and worked. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known, clever people and we try and uh, work out what they're all on about and uh, where they're sort of core values come from. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today Helen Thompson, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Cambridge. Is it anything more fancy than that? Political economy. Political economy. And um, unusually, Helen is one of those people who people will know her from her talking politics podcast and for being one of the foremost commentators on the political, the state of politics today. But looking around on the internet, you are a mystery. So so I'm really looking forward to getting to know you and working out what what makes you tick. Tell me something about where you come from. Well, I was was born in Nottingham, but we moved around quite a bit because my father worked for um, British Rail. So uh, we went to Stafford. That's when I started remembering things when I was about four. Uh, We went then to Nottingham, back to Nottingham when I was 10, um, to Milton Keynes when I was 16. But I had an ongoing relationship with Nottingham through that because that was where my grandparents on my mother's side and you've got from. a little bit of a Nottingham accent, I still have you? a Midlands accent. When I was uh, a child, I, I, had a, I had a West Midlands accent, and then I moved to having an East Midlands accent, and now I'm not, it, it's got some sort of echoes of all that stuff left. You don't say Maduck or things like that? No. <laughs> <laughs> when I moved to Milton Keynes, it was quite hard to uh, not get out of... I never said Maduck, but I couldn't say hi, because nobody in Nottingham says hi. Oh, is that right? So it took me about a year when we moved to Milton Keynes to learn to say hi to anybody. <laughs> so your dad worked for British Rail? Yeah. Uh, tell me about, sort of describe your family setup and some of the sort of values that are impregnated in that. Well, my, my parents were uh, both went to a grammar school and then went on to university. In my mum's case, she was really the first person in her family to go to university. In my, in my dad's case, uh, his great-grandfather had gone to university, but in sort of slightly unusual circumstances in that he'd been down, the great-grandfather had been down a an open collar in mind when he was 12 years old, but the chapel had got him a scholarship to go to Aberystwyth University. And then uh, his, my dad's grandmother and my dad's mother had all, both had their education thwarted by looking after ill parents. And so then my dad um, went to university. He he was an electrical engineer. That's how he um, ended up working at um, British Rail. So we moved around, um, but because he worked for British Rail, we also accumulated free rail passes so we could also travel around a lot so uh, both from Stafford and and Nottingham uh, my parents were quite keen on showing us the rest of the country so I sort of grew up simultaneously with quite a strong attachment to these places in the Midlands that I was living but at the same time always being taken to different places and particularly being taken to London that made quite an impact on me. And whether were they, were they was were books a part of the, the politics and yeah I mean so my parents had had a, a lot of books in the house and that was different than my friends to a considerable extent both actually in Stafford and uh, in Nottingham and they also we didn't have a television uh, so and they had Radio Four on pretty much what seemed like at the time like the entire day. So I was quite conscious of politics from quite an early age from the radio. 
and picking up things that sort of interested me. Even as a child, I was kind of quite interested in the drama, I think, of, of politics. And there was quite a lot of political conversation around the table. Um, my parents had, had been Labour voters. I think they stopped voting um, Labour in 1979, but not to vote Conservative. My, my father then um, became a Social Democrat, joined the SDP. And I sort of, I think, I think I joined the Labour Party sometime, maybe 1984, certainly by the time, sometime when Neil Kinnock was, uh, was leader and had, I'd say, quite sort of standard student left views at the time. In terms of what you'd consider your class background mm. to be, what, 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 how would you describe that? Well, that was quite complicated because I, at the time I was, I very much thought of it, I guess, as, as middle class. Um, and the the schools that I went to um, were in essentially sort of lower middle class areas of Stafford and of, of of Nottingham. But at the same time, I was quite conscious that um, my grandparents' world was different. They'd all, I think, the um, one of my grandfathers left school at fourteen. He 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 was a printer. Two of them had left school at sixteen and. My grandmother, my dad's side, had had done A levels and then stopped. So, the, my grandparents on my father's side lived in a council house in Aylesbury, and on my mother's side they lived in in rented accommodation, rented house. So they stayed at all, always the same house uh, in Nottingham. So I, I was quite conscious that there were these different worlds in in our family, uh, and um, but I didn't grow up with any sense whatsoever about the the middle class one being in any sense superior. Um, that wasn't what my parents wanted me to think about it, and it wasn't what I thought about the situation. But I was quite conscious, which is obviously quite pertinent to some of the political issues we now face, of the of the educational divide, and that my parents had left something behind by being educated to university level, and then uh, my sister and I were growing up with certain educational expectations of us, uh, and that you know I. In some sense, I was a little bit resistant to that, perhaps. On the other hand, I completely, I completely took it for granted that I would be doing what my parents did and going off to university. I levels and, and university. What did you do? I did politics. I, well, I started off doing politics and philosophy at Warwick, and although um, I enjoyed doing the logic part of philosophy, I pretty much hated everything else. Oh, really? <laughs> but mainly because at Warwick, then they basically were just. Uh, teaching us that logical positivism was wrong. Okay, yeah. But at the same time, they weren't, which I agree with, but at the same time, they weren't interested in teaching us anything that wasn't, that I thought were the interesting questions. And, and just last, lastly about your, the family background, yeah. religion a part of this or not yeah, a part of so this? Yeah, so my parents were uh, Anglicans. They, we went to church um, every week, uh, both, well, throughout um, my childhood and um, as adolescent. We were part of church community, both in Stafford and in Nottingham. And, I I liked that. I, I liked um, going to church for a long time, and I liked the community aspect. Church of England. Church yeah. of England, yeah. yeah. I mean, in some sense, I think that if you look at some of my sort of family's history, it looks like it would be a bit more nonconformist. Yeah. But actually, by the time of my, uh, at least my great-grandparents' generation, it, it all turned Anglican. Right, right, right. That's a slight, that, that, that is often goes with that slight sort of like upwardly mobile <laughs> thing from yeah. sort of working class to... To lower middle class and onwards, mm. as it were, that often happens, doesn't it? That, that 
trajectory? I guess so. I mean, I think that uh, it it turned you know a bit earlier on, at least on my on my mother's side of things, with with a generation that didn't really succeed in getting an education, even though that that they were quite. I mean, when I look when I look back, and my sister's done quite a lot of family histories, and and I know something about this in that respect, and also from the things that my grandparents would tell me. There's a lot of people who are who are reading books and trying to get themselves educated a bit more, like going to Workers' Education Association um, classes, but it never quite it never quite works. And so, you know, in some sense, that made me very, or has come over time anyway, to make me very conscious of how lucky that I've been to have had the educational opportunities that I've had. When I listen to you talk, you're very thoughtful and and considered. But I imagine when you're sort of like, you know, 18, <laughs> I, I suppose I want to ask what, what sort of viscerally, politically drove you. Were you sort of up the workers? Was that, a, was that part of your leftism? Well, it, it's quite strange in retrospect when I look back on that because I thought of myself as quite left-wing. Um, but when I look back, it doesn't look very left-wing at all, to be honest. Okay. I, I joined the Labour Party, um, but and the first issues that really I remember getting emotionally involved with in, in British politics was the campaign for nuclear disarmament. But even then, I couldn't really make my mind up whether I really supported unilateral nuclear disarmament. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting on the fence. Yeah, and, and then and then I was also very interested in, um, which probably in some sense was the first cause that I really sort of attached myself to was actually the solidarity cause in, in Poland. That made that made a considerable impact. But that's after you've decided to do politics. Well no, because I was because that was that was I think I was like thirteen, fourteen okay. where at, at, at that point I used to talk, I used to um, instead of doing my needlework lessons, which I wasn't that keen on, I used to talk to the Polish uh, needlework teacher about what the events in Poland. Okay. Uh, so I, I but it was it was really in the mid '80s that I started thinking of it as something that I wanted, at that time anyway, to more participate in. But there were there were a whole set of issues I think in retrospect that I had from the beginning with uh, being politically active. In that, first of all, I'm quite introverted, so the sort of the social aspect of it I found not difficult, but at least complicated. And then when I went to Warwick. And I joined the the Labour Club. I was just felt completely alienated from it. You know, I, in that sense, I was a, you know, like a, a naive kid from Milton Keynes by that um, point. And it seemed that it was an essential in that Labour Club to have some pretty strong commitments to political causes that I didn't share. Start, oh, on, like starting what? with the, <laughs> starting with the IRA. That was the thing that completely baffled me. I just couldn't understand what. Um, you know, being a Labour Party supporter had to do with supporting the IRA, but in Warwick Labour Club at that point in the mid eighties, that had quite a lot to. And coming quite... from the Midlands, I guess the IRA is a it's a it's, it's, it's personal. It's it is. I mean, I, I was living in 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 Stafford um, in the aftermath of the Birmingham pub bombings. I remember not really well, but I remember the, the, something of the the horror of it. And then for the year or so afterwards at school, uh, we would regularly basically have to go and stand on the playground or sometimes be sent home because somebody with an Irish accent or a fake Irish accent would ring up the school and say that there was a bomb. So you do that to your school? Yeah, and it was so it, it was there was quite a lot of, of fear around uh, in Stafford, as I recall anyway, in the, in that year or so. I can't remember how long it went on, to be honest, but in that year or so after the, the Birmingham pub bombing. So... Uh, I've always 
had a, a visceral reaction against pretty much anything to do with the with the IRA. And then I'm trying to work out when the miners' strike and all of that sort of stuff's going yeah. on in your political formation. Well, that was that was also that was also interesting because I'd left. That was 1984, 85, wasn't it? And I, uh, we left Nottingham in terms of not living there, but obviously we're still going back because of my grandparents in, in 1983. And my um, my mum's cousin's husband, Paddy, he was a, he was a miner, a Nottinghamshire miner, who didn't go on strike. OK. And, and there was quite a... Um, for people who don't remember that no. period, Nottingham was one of the sort of centres of, of people who resisted the strike, wasn't Very it? much so. Uh, I mean, the Nottinghamshire miners, in some sense, were the centre of the re- of, of the resistance to the, the NUM about, about, yeah. the, about the strike and Scargill. And, you know, and I was, I was very, very torn by that in the sense that I, I didn't... I, I understood where these people that I knew from my family were coming from. My great-uncle Joe had worked down the same pit as an electrician, and that their objection to the strike was that there'd be no ballot. For them, it was a matter of principle that there had to be a ballot to go out on strike, and there and there wasn't one. On the on the other hand, and this partly came from the other side of my family, where uh, my grandmother on the other side um, was a daughter of you know she grew up in the Ronda, um, of a daughter of a miner, and I that whole sort of way of life that the miners represented those communities that had some imaginative impact on me on me too and so I hated the destructiveness of what what Thatcher was doing but I just as much hated the destructiveness of what Scargill was doing and the fact that I thought that the miners were being used for much more cynical purposes by Scargill. So you're already having there's there's already a sort of um, developing here a sort of um, Left, but not a commie type. <laughs> rather, rather that's rather important in you in terms of IRA and mm. and minor strike and yeah. I also solidarity. Think, yeah, too I also think in retrospect that I I just never shared the sort of teleological assumptions about progress. I see. I think that the 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 the, the, the many people on the left um, have. It's not. I didn't think like that at the time, but when I when I look back, I've never had any sense of the sort of the direction of history. And the, the sort of the belief that you, there are a certain class of people who are the agents of history to drive it forward. That I, 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 you know, I just didn't think like, and just didn't think in those terms at all. Is that partly because I'm interested? Because I did politics and philosophy mm. when I arrived at university, and then I immediately dropped the politics. I did the <laughs> philosophy, completely different yeah. to you. And partly because I thought in terms of those sort of grand, sweeping. Um, philosophical sort of gestures, you know. I, I don't think like that anymore, but I certainly did at the time. But you're, you're, you seem to be quite suspicious of the sort of big philosophical gesture when it comes to politics. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think I think that, and I think that in retrospect, that is the me that, if you like, that grew up in the Midlands. I mean, it's a it's a sceptical place. I mean, the the idea of having sort of big ideas that explain everything that's just not part of the way things people think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and anybody who starts thinking like that would particularly particularly you know quite quickly get told that they were you know too big for their boots says the professor of, <laughs> of politics at the university of cambridge <laughs> so and and also i'm drawn i mean i have a more empirical mind i'm drawn to history i'm drawn to particulars so 
grand theories uh, have, have never particularly appealed to me. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in intellectual history. I, I, I am in, or I came to be interested in quite a number of ways, at least since I went to Cambridge. Um, but grand theorising has never has never appealed to me. There's a long, very English tradition yeah. of suspicion. Of, I have very. Of English, I, I think that I am very English in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So University Warwick, you do your you do your politics. Where do we where do we go from there? Well, I didn't really know what to do to be honest. Um, when uh, in the last year I was at university, I think then part that 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 was nineteen eighty seven eighty eight. It was a sort of function of those Thatcher years in in some sense, where I think that there was uh, if you if you were the kind of sort of sort of on the left kind of person, I I was in a certain kind of suspicion of like ambition and of like well, what kind of careers were open, uh, and I didn't have any idea really. But I had a, someone who taught me American politics, and I was very keen on American politics then, who said basically there was money from Warwick or an arrangement between Warwick and the University of Virginia Tech, which is in the southwest. It's in, the, it's, it's in a ridge between the Appalachian and the Blue Ridge Mountains in southwest Virginia to, to, to do a master's degree. So not really knowing what else to do, I thought, yeah, I quite fancy that. So pretty much about four weeks, I think, after I, I graduated from Warwick, I was on a plane um, off to um, to Virginia. And I remember that I, I flew to Washington, which was all straightforward. I'd been to, to Washington, D.C. Uh, before. And then I was getting this flight to a place called Roanoke, which is the nearest place to, to where the unit, to, to Blacksburg, where Virginia Tech uh, is. And they called the flight and it was this tiny plane. There were like 12 seats on the plane. There were three of us on the flight and it kind of like wobbled its way all the way down <laughs> to the southwest corner of Virginia. There's scarcely an airport. I got up at the tarmac, looked up at these mountains and thought I'd, you know, like gone to the end of the earth, really. There's some real poverty in that part of yeah, the world. And it's well, really, it? Yeah. And so it was a college, it's a college town, but surrounded by real, real, real poverty. Yeah. Uh, and I, I found it quite a shock to begin with. But I, I, in the end, got a lot out of my just about uh, eighteen months in 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 the United States, including an interest in the South. I mean, it was quite a uh, politically charged, you know, experience. I mean, it wasn't just the poverty that was to the fore; it was the racism that was to the fore as well. But I think in the end, I I, I came to see that there was more to the South and and Southern history than that, and I've, I remained interested in in, in 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 Southern history since then. And then I went, I came back, I still didn't massively know what I wanted to do. Uh, but in the end, I decided that I would do a PhD and try to be an academic. Not, it must be said, with a great deal of conviction at the time. But I went to the LSE, to the London School of Economics, to do uh, a PhD. I initially had some idea about doing something about environmental politics, but I can't actually remember any longer what. But I remember I had a someone I'd befriended uh, in my year, 18 months in Virginia, who was a professor in Berlin. And uh, he said uh, that if I was in Berlin that summer, you know, go and visit him, which I did. It was the summer after the wall came down. And he said to me, and I remember really clearly, he said, I think your country's about to make a terrible mistake about its relationship with the with the European community, as it, there's, as it then was, by turning its back on monetary union. I suggest that you spend some time thinking about that for your PhD. Okay. And I kind of resented it, but over the course of the summer, I'm not sure I agreed with him about the making a terrible mistake aspect, but I thought it matters for the future of British politics, this question. And 
So I decided to do my PhD on the relationship of the, the well, basically the way that the, the, the Thatcher government had dealt with the question of Britain's membership of the European exchange rate mechanism, which in some sense was the precursor to the euro. So I spent three years doing that. And indeed, I was trying to do it at the point when Britain was actually crashing out of the exchange rate mechanism <laughs> on Black Wednesday. Hey, it, wasn't, it wasn't one of those situations where you'd nearly written your PhD and then the most important thing no, about no. it but Literally, by the time that I was just about trying to finish it, the whole system was crashing. There was a, there was a, Between 93, it was, it was all, except for the, I think it was, except for the relationship between the German currency and the Dutch currency, the entire system was suspended the summer I was trying to finish. So you had to carefully rewrite it or certainly have a long postscript yeah, or something. it was, yeah. <laughs> so you were interested in, as it were, the Europe question quite early on in your academic career. Yeah, I was. I, I think the other thing I should say actually about, about my turning to that, because Hans-Dieter Klingerman, who's the, the professor in, in Berlin, had, had, had sort of said to me, wake up about Britain and the EU essentially. And then I've been taught British politics at Warwick by a man called Jim Bulpit, uh, who I think was uh, he was a very idiosyncratic uh, political thinker, but I, I think he wrote the the sharpest uh, political science there is analysis there is about the Thatcher government, certainly the early Thatcher um, governments. And I'd taken his course on the I'd taken his British politics course on his Thatcher government course, and I remember this lecture when he basically said, pretty much everybody in the cabinet wants to join the exchange rate mechanism. And he said, the, the people in the Foreign Office, they want to join the exchange rate mechanism in the Treasury, in the Bank of England. There's only one person who doesn't, and that's Mrs. Thatcher. And he said, uh, this question really matters. And so when I was trying to figure out how I could translate this, Britain and the European Union matters into something specific to do for a PhD, I went back to that and thought, OK, I'm going to try to understand why the Conservatives have spent 11 years fighting with each other. Well, it was really nine of the 11 years fighting with each other about the exchange rate mechanism. This would be very easy to just like move from there to where we are today, <laughs> no. wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, we have a we have the Conservative Party at war with each other about Europe for all of these thirty or forty, mm. whatever thirty something years, and now it seems like that war is almost over. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me when I was doing the PhD was that. None of them, and I mean, and it was prim, you know primarily became a fight between Mrs. Thatcher, Geoffrey Howe, and Nigel Lawson. It seemed to me that none of them really understood what Britain being inside this, or Sterling, I should say, being inside the exchange rate mechanism was about. And to the extent that they did, that Mrs. Thatcher, it seemed to me, understood better than the the Go other. On, tell me what it's about. Well, tell me what it was it's, about. Essentially, is is that from about. 90, well, you can argue about whether it's from 1981 from, or from 1985, but that doesn't really matter. Certainly by 1985, Geoffrey Howe and, and particularly Nigel Lawson had come to the view that the only way that sterling could be managed and kept as a currency that wasn't being sort of, if you like, bashed about on the foreign exchange markets and leading to a situation where Britain had higher interest rates was to join the exchange rate mechanism. And for a while, Nigel Lawson tried to shadow the Deutschmark. So he was basically trying to have a, a, a de facto ERM policy without actually being in it because he knew that Mrs. Thatcher would never um, agree to this. And Mrs. Thatcher didn't want to agree to it. Margaret Thatcher didn't want to agree to it because she understood that it would constrain British monetary policy and it would constrain British fiscal policy. And it seemed to me that 
Jeffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson didn't seem to understand that it would do that. So, for instance, the the tax-cutting budget that Nigel Lawson made in 1980, well, well, made made after the 1987 election, um, the the big cuts in the 1988 budget, he wouldn't have been able to do that inside the exchange rate mechanism. And yet he was pushing for Britain to join the exchange rate um, mechanism. So that was part of, if you like, the the paradox that... So was Mrs Thatcher more of what people would call now an economic nationalist? Was there a little bit more of that within There was. I mean, I'm not sure how much she deeply understood how it would all work either, but I think that she instinctively understood that it was something that would be a macroeconomic constraint in a way that that, uh, I wasn't so convinced from the positions that he took that Lawson did. And Geoffrey Howe was very keen on using it as a way of saying, look, this is about Britain's commitment to the European community. And it doesn't really matter what the macroeconomic consequences are. We need to be inside this if we're going to have, um, we're going to have uh, influence. And I think that what you can then see happens to the Conservative Party in, in, in 1990s is that once they're confronted with the problem of the European community moving towards what will become the euro, Mrs Thatcher has reached the point where she says no. So all her instincts that have been sort of, if you like, um, stimulated by the ERM question get focused on monetary union. And she says, well, first of all, she thinks the whole idea of monetary union is cloud cuckoo land, to use a phrase that she's used. And she just can't see how the British economy is really compatible with the development of that project. And I and I think, which is ironic, I think that she gets pushed out really because of that issue more than oh, really? more than any more than more than anything else. Uh, you know, you might even argue that that it's she's the the first prime minister of a of a major European community country that gets pushed away in an internal party coup because she's not really holding the party line about the, about a European um, question. Yeah. The ironic thing is, is that in terms of Lawson anyway, that by the time you get to the, the referendum, he's moved not just so he's against all the monetary side of things, but he's moved into somebody who wants Britain out of the, the, the European Union. And she, I think, wins a, you know, a retrospective victory against those in the Conservative Party who'd been in her cabinet who who wanted to say, look, whatever the, uh, in some sense, the rights and wrongs of the European project, in particular the European monetary project, we have to stay on board with this because we Britain has to be inside the European community. So if the price to pay is at least opening the door to the monetary union, even if they're not going to join straight away, it has to be paid. And Thatcher's view is, is no, that is just too far. And that in the end, uh, that Britain has to prioritise staying out of the euro over any other consideration where the EU is concerned. And that leads her to the point, I mean, who knows? I mean, I I don't particularly have a view as to whether she absolutely would have got to exit if she lived, but I suspect that she would, given that Nigel Lawson did. You smell like a Eurosceptic to me. Would is that a fair decision? Is <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, cer- I'm certainly, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about the Euro- about the European Union project uh, in a number of ways. I'm skeptical about the euro. I, I think that having a monetary union between the kind of economies that are in the euro is very difficult to make work in the long term and that 
I think that the Eurozone crisis showed not just the difficulties uh, of trying to have a monetary union between Greece and Germany, but that it then became possible to justify a the imposition of a considerable amount of suffering on Greece in the name of an abstract European idea of keeping monetary union and ultimately the European Union together. So you have a much stronger sense of different nations requiring different economic policies with different, um, yeah, different economic policies. Yeah, I mean, I basically, I, I think there are lots of ways that the, the, the monetary union, as it emerged, not necessarily as it was conceived by the French in the late 80s and the early 90s, but as it emerged being a large monetary union with a, with a number, with, a, with, with more than just the old core original Treaty of Rome states is pretty much a utopian project. And given that I'm not a skeptical utopian, about utopians, we've established that. Yeah, yeah. Then, then I'm skeptical about um, then I'm skeptical about um, the euro, and I'm skeptical about the European Union uh, as a. Geo- but we weren't ever, you know, we, is there? Do you have a sort of skepticism also of of uh, the United Kingdom's membership of the European Union, even though we weren't in the euro? Well, I think I, th- I think that my view here is is really formed by the fact that it seems to me that it was the eurozone crisis that played a pretty significant part in blowing up Britain's European Union membership. It, it, it seems to me there were two fault lines that ran through Britain's European Union membership. One of them was a monetary question. So the fact that it wasn't just that we'd stayed outside the exchange rate mechanism for all but two years. But if you go back to even before Britain had joined... Um, the European Community um, back in 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 1973, we'd spent six weeks in something called the snake, which was like a precursor to the exchange rate <laughs> mechanism. So we'd left our first European monetary arrangement before we'd even joined the European Community, and, and, and then you know John Major had hoped that the opt out that he negotiated in the Maastricht Treaty could be turned into an opt in, so we kind of have delayed membership, and that isn't what had happened because of Black Wednesday and all the fallout. Of that, so it seems to me there was a monetary fault line that ran down um, Britain's membership, and then there was a constitutional fault line that ran down Britain's membership, which went back to the fact that it wasn't acknowledged back in 1973 that it was a major constitutional deal joining the European Community. And I think you can see that by 2005, when you've even got, or 2004, sorry, when you've even got Tony Blair saying, "Okay, we probably will have to have a referendum on this constitutional treaty," and indeed all three main parties went into the 2005 election committed to a, um, a referendum on that constitutional um, treaty that the issue of consent to the constitutional to, to really to Britain's participation in the EU constitutional order was up for grabs and and so the eurozone crisis it seemed to me coming on top of the constitutional consent um, crisis sort of blew apart the conditions in which Britain's membership of the European Union had stayed together. Uh, what I want to ask you, I suppose, is when this whole thing blew up as a as a sort of big issue. So I can mm. understand why this is an academic issue this, uh, or an issue for the City of London and so forth, but it it was much, much later that it got weaponised and, and became a sort of great cultural issue. How did it creep up into this sort of great cultural issue that it's sort of become in the last few years? I think that that's... That... That's a that's a really hard question to uh, to answer. I think in some sense it was the referendum itself that turned it into that 
cultural issue. Uh, because I th- as I say, I think that you know you can tell a story that runs from two thousand and five and the uh, and the constitutional treaty through Lisbon, through the Lisbon Treaty, uh, through the promise that then um, Cameron made that to effectively to revisit the substance of the Lisbon Treaty if the Conservatives were re-elected, through the um, two thousand and eleven European Community Act that said if there was a new treaty which moved powers from Westminster to the EU, there had to be a referendum. And then you can tell the story of the Eurozone crisis and the way it made certain things for the city more difficult, about the way it politicised freedom of of movement, particularly from 2012 when the Eurozone economy was back in recession and the British economy was recovering. But none of those, I think, can explain the political force and energy and the, the, the sheer passion that was let loose, perhaps not even during the referendum campaign itself, but certainly after the referendum yeah. um, campaign. Almost like the day after. It was. Uh, and and one of the things that you know, has surprised me, I think, is is that you know, lots of people, to some extent on both sides, who who didn't have really strong opinions about the European Union at all. Indeed, in some cases I can think of, I never heard them say anything about the European Union, suddenly had extraordinary emotion it's a, about the European Union, I, I had um, I had a, did a confessions a while back with Matt Kelly, delightful guy, uh, who set up the New European, and he said like it was the day after. It was just it felt like a sort of absolute hit him like a drop. I have to go out and you know set up this newspaper and campaign and mm. so forth, and that energy has kept him going all the way through. It's extraordinary that that uh, that it happened so quickly, isn't it? It is, and it, it makes me think that actually a lot of it isn't really to do with the European Union. Uh-huh. That it's a it's a on both sides again that it's a proxy for something else oh. uh, and that there's I mean in, in, in some sense I think it you know it, it, it's about our identity in relation to our country uh, and to some extent in relation to the class politics element of that but I think in some sense it goes it goes deeper um, than that and I remember during the Scottish referendum campaign which seemed to go on a long time, but I wasn't paying, to be honest, to my regret in retrospect, but until sort of the last six weeks, I wasn't paying a great deal of attention. And then I started paying attention and sort of feeling somewhat emotional about it in ways that surprised uh, me. And then I thought to myself, goodness, you know, if you have to think about these kind of identity questions for that long, aren't you, you know, it would drive you mad. And of course, that's exactly what we then spent three and a half years doing. It never occurred to me that actually we were actually going to have to live through an Tense form of this for a longer period so it, of time. So it was a proxy for a sort of. It suddenly asked the question about who we are in a way that no other question had quite asked that question for a long time. Yeah, and I can see that in myself in a way. You know, I tried to to think during the referendum campaign about the question in quite an analytical way, in in, in some sense. Uh, and then after the election, after the referendum, sorry, it seemed to be about a whole host of other things that hadn't been part of the. Uh, the reasoning, if you like, that I brought to bear for myself in, in making my mind up how to vote in the in, in in the referendum, and I can see that in a in a lot of my friends again on, on both sides of the on, on both sides of the divide, having emotions that they didn't know anything 
about at all until either the referendum night or in the days afterwards. I mean, I can't remember who it was who said it's the economy stupid. Um, but it, there was a sense in which it was all about the economy. Uh, that was Bill Clinton. Was it? Was or it someone Clinton? on Bill Clinton's campaign okay. anyway? Yeah. So, like that that idea that it's all about the economy. You know, all these questions all be reduced to the question of, uh, of the economy after the referendum. It seemed obvious that that really wasn't true. No, absolutely. Uh, and you know, if it, if it had been true, I th- you know, Remain would have won. Uh, would have would have won the uh, would have won the campaign. And I think that. I mean, I think that some people then would, might draw the, con- you know, would draw the conclusion from that, or at least they wanted to on the Remain side, that if Remain had run a much more positive campaign, appealing to a sense of European identity and much more uh, telling a much more positive story, story about the EU, that they would have won. I mean, I don't actually think that's the case, not least because I don't think that that positive story about the EU, I think that was kind of created by the defeat of Remain, right. in see, terms of having its emotional. Um, potency rather than being something that could have been appealed to um, prior to it because you know, it, it, I think that most people in the years leading up to that referendum would have thought of themselves in a Eurosceptic, as Eurosceptics much more so than than they would now and so we, we didn't really have a, a body of opinion I think in this country's politics until after the referendum they were so pro-European and who would have guessed I mean everybody you know, for, for years talked about the Conservative having the European problem. It was the Conservatives mm. had the European problem. Now, after this election, it doesn't look like the Conservatives have got the European problem anymore. It looks like the Labour Party's really got the European problem. Well, you see, I, yeah, I always found it somewhat exasperating, including actually in these sort of years leading up to the, uh, to the referendum when, when, once UKIP, that we start to see the rise of, of UKIP. I remember would be arguing with people sometimes in in Cambridge and they would treat UKIP as something that was a simply a party sorry a problem for the conservatives i mean if you go back to sort of in the in the in the run up to the 2015 election there were plenty of people in the labor party probably including you know Ed Miliband and those around him who thought that was one of the reasons why they were going to win that election because the UKIP was going to hurt the conservatives it seemed to me sort of blatantly obvious uh, that um, Labour had a an EU problem too. That the there was likely to be any number of people who had used who were used to voting Labour who would be listened to the UKIP message when it was UKIP and were willing to vote Leave when it came to the uh, when it came to the referendum. And I think that there was a certain complacency in the. In 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 the Labour Party, sort of, in thinking that that the essential Eurosceptic message, as it as it then was, had sort of appealed to some older ideas about England being a self-governing country. The idea that people should consent to the way in which they govern, the sort of, in some sense, a basic idea about democracy that you elect people to govern, and then if you don't like the way that they're governing, that you can directly throw them out. Yeah. That seemed to me to be an obvious part of the Labour Party's All that heritage. stuff about who yeah. gave you your power, where did it yeah. come from, Labour Party heritage, uh, and indeed, you know, from obviously in the 70s and for much of the 80s, it had been Labour that had been the, the more Eurosceptic um, party. And whilst it was seemed obvious to me that, at the, if you like, within the parliamentary party itself, and in some sense amongst the part of... Uh, Labour's professional middle class support that the law coming to the TUC and sort of talking about social rights 
for Europe had been some great turning point in terms of their attitudes towards the European Union. It seemed to me that that wasn't necessarily the case for lots of Labour voters, say, in a place like Stoke. So it's very interesting, isn't it? Because you uh, grew up on the sort of bottom end of the Red Wall, as it were, and yet you've spent a lot of your professional life in uh, places like Cambridge, I guess, which uh, I imagine that there's a lot of people there who really don't understand the the, the sort of thinking that would have resulted in uh, many places on the red wall voting Tory. No, not not, not at all. And I, mean, I remember very strongly on uh, the referendum night about uh, three o'clock in the morning when it was clear that Leave were going to, to win, thinking to myself that this was the world that I grew up in versus the world in which I um, lived and worked because I, I live in, uh, in London in Lambeth and that the world on which I would, would grown up in was giving a a pretty decisive defeat. Not, I don't mean decisive in the sense of the, it being 52-48. I meant just in terms of the geographical concentration of the Remain vote versus the provincial England and provincial Welsh vote. And that I understood where that was coming from. And I knew that when I went back to Cambridge in the morning, where I was going off to do a Talking Politics um, podcast, that there were lots of people who weren't going to be understanding where that vote had come from. Morning, almost, yeah. Would be very angry about it. And to some extent, I'd felt the same thing, actually, in the 2015 general election. We'd started doing uh, Talking Politics. The, to begin with, we did it as a season. It was actually called Election. As a run-up to the 2015 election. And I remember saying uh, what seemed to be rather repetitively uh, that, Labour were not going to do well in the Midlands and that Ed Miliband was just not going to work at all uh, in the Midlands and that that's why this election was going to be lost for Labour. Now, I turn out to be right about that, but I remember feeling often when we were doing the podcast that I was seemed to be sort of sticking my neck out. I can, I can feel you with your both your professional... Uh, academic life and your where you come from, I can feel a sort of the tension, the pulling both ways type of thing. No, uh, I I haven't lived in uh, the Midlands for a long time. Uh, I say my um, we left to go to Milton Keynes when I was sixteen, but my grandparents um, were still in Nottingham, and because I had a free rail pass, I kept a life and a lot of friends there. And I didn't want to leave Nottingham when I was sixteen. I kept a life there for the for the rest of my grandparents like t- times that they were still alive so that was to my um, early 20s and I had some sense that it wasn't a place that I either necessarily wanted to go back to or in some sense could go back to but I never felt any need to leave it behind or repudiate it I liked it I still do like it uh, and yet I've spent 25 years in Cambridge and I also like Cambridge I like living in London. I support a London football team. <laughs> now you support West Ham. I support don't West Ham. Yeah. Shockingly bad. You and Ian Dale. It's like shockingly bad. We should just like fall out right this moment. Uh, and uh, and so I just tried to. I I think a bit more as sort of simulating it all as opposed to taking a side or rejecting. Yeah. Any part but you're of well it, but, placed to explain one to the other. But that it does mean that I try and think. I, I try and hold the tension between between them. So where are we now? So we've just had. We've just had this uh, 
this extraordinary election. Did you did you guess what do you think was going to happen? Were you well? I, well, I think that uh, I think I said to several people in the in the in the run up that I I could see outcomes that went from uh, the hung parliament, which I thought least likely, to something like what did happen. And the way that I would explain it is is that I thought there would be a lot of people in what's come to be called, you know, behind the red wall, so to speak, or who would be going into the polling booth contemplating not voting Labour for the first time and that they would go in the polling booth with a lot of ghosts from you know their family's ghosts. history yeah. and that if enough of them lost their nerve, then we could actually see the Conservatives not winning or getting a very small majority. But if they didn't, then it could come, to use the war metaphor, it could come tumbling down and I thought about it in terms of the way I sort of articulated it to myself you know the, the ghost on the one hand could say look you just can't do that you know you're just trampling all over the yeah. past if you, yeah. if you if you don't vote for the Labour Party but the other way I thought about it was the ghost could be saying you know what I'd probably hate Corbyn as much as you would even more or I would be totally affronted on your part that your vote's been ignored in the in the referendum because it seemed to me there were such power thing, things being let loose by this and once you've, and once you've once you've lost your cherry on this voting Tory or whatever, I imagine it's, it would be much easier for people to do that in the future. Yeah, and I also thought I have to say, I mean, this, this is partly sort of I think the the the, the Welsh side of my family is is that I, I did think the one place where the war was most likely to to stand would be the Welsh Valleys. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and um, because I think that when it comes to obviously. It, it, it's not just a question of it being a mining area because that's true in quite a number of the places in the Midlands and the North that also have fallen from Labour. But in the Welsh case, I think that there's, there's a whole other issue about the relationship between England and Wales and that makes the psychological barrier of... Despite of, of, Welsh Euroscepticism. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you go to the, you know, in the Rhonda... Um, when my grandmother you know, was from, you get a lot of Euroscepticism. You still get quite a lot of voting for the Brexit party. But I, I, I did understand that um, voting Conservative was a whole other proposition. <laughs> <laughs> my, my grandmother died. She was 97 when she died. She died uh, uh, last summer. And you know, there is abs- I mean, she's absolutely no way in the world anything could have brought her uh, to vote for the Conservative party. That's extraordinary, those depths. So where are we now? So where are we now? I mean, I, I think it's going to take quite a long time. It, it, it looks like it's certain we're going to leave the European Union. Mm. Um, and uh, do you have any sense about how this now starts to, to unfold? Not necessarily. I think that I, I, one of the things that's concerned me over the last few years since the referendum is, is, is really uh, how insular much of the discussion that we've had has been about the future. And partly it's because we've struggled to get past the past to get to the future yes. because we've been contesting the referendum result. But I think that, you know, that there are, you know, there are serious fault lines, not just in the European Union, but uh, in the entire Atlantic Alliance and NATO, and that they are going to play themselves out quite dramatically over the next few years. And that for us to try and sort out an economic relationship not only with the EU, but perhaps with the United States as well, whilst those tensions on fault lines are playing themselves out, is going to, is, is going to be quite fraught. Because you know, we can talk about it as, is it, do we prioritise 
the trade relationship with the EU or the trade relationship with the United States. I'd say in some sense you say it's more likely to prioritise the trade relationship with the European Union for you know, fairly obvious um, reasons. But what do you then do if Iran continues to be such a divisive question between the European Union and the United States? I mean, Johnson's already moved us a little bit away from the European Union position, position. particularly over the, the Persian Gulf um, crisis in the summer. But we're still, at least for the moment, on the side of the European Union about trying to resurrect the, the nuclear deal now. Is that going to last? Do we get into the point where we're trading off questions about the trade agreement with security questions? And I don't know what the answers to any of these questions are, but I think that we need to start thinking about the bigger picture rather than the way that we've been conceiving our future with the EU thus far. Am I right in saying that, I mean, a lot of the language when we talked about our position in Europe and the conservative position, we, we talked about history and we talked about ghosts, we talked about so much of it is about influence by the past and the, the the, the, the call that the past has upon us. Is this, could this be some sort of moment in which that, that the past is, those questions are laid to rest and we're now faced with a whole load of other questions which do make us more forward-looking? Yeah, I, mean, I don't mean forward as in a positive no. thing. I mean, just mean just we have to address a whole load of other questions. I mean, I think that, that something of, of, of real significance has happened to us as a country over the last three and a half years and then indeed what happened in some sense we've been through an ordeal as a country since the referendum about whether that referendum result was going to be accepted or whether it was going to be recontested and all of us or many of us at least as I'm sure you would agree is have had sort of individual experiences that feel sometimes like an ordeal um, as well and our institutions too, yeah, as well. You absolutely, know, judiciary the, the, and... everything. The constitution yeah. has been shown uh, to have any number of difficulties. In some sense, it's also been itself been changed by the experience of the last um, three and a half years. Voting patterns have been turned upside down by what happened, and in some sense, I think that the past three and a half years maybe can be laid to rest and I don't mean that in the sense of saying that there aren't still going to be people who are going to feel bitterly disappointed and angry about what's happened and be fearful for their own um, future that 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 isn't going to go away but I would hope that we can have a more constructive debate about the future than we've had thus far I think since I suppose that's an advantage about um, Boris Johnson Having such a large majority, yeah. and in a sense, it sort of it sort of puts the question to bed. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I like thinking around the concept of of losers' consent. And one of the things that worried me about this election was that I, I couldn't quite see how it was going to bring about losers' consent on the Brexit question. But I think that the size of the majority and the fact that something has ended that decision about whether to implement the referendum decision or not gives us a higher chance of losers consent than I feared even before we had the election and I think the reason for that is as you say is is the size of the majority and the fact that it can bring some sense of relief just that a decision um, has been made. I think the fact that seismic change has also happened in voting uh, is good in the sense that it will not be possible again for 
the North and the Midlands and Wales, I think, to be taken for granted in the same way no. which that they have been. No. Both the political parties are now going to be fighting for those seats. And so I think that some rebalancing will take place. And that, 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 That's a good thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know, all the problems that we know, the regional inequalities that exist in this country are going to go away. But at, at least it means, I think, that there's going to be an attempt to respond to them out of political necessity. And and that draws a line, I think, under a certain part of the past too. I sort of understand, I think, you know, what what the future of the Conservative Party the next five years looks a little bit like. I have no idea <laughs> what the future of the Labour Party looks like now. No, I mean, I think that it's quite hard, isn't it, if you, if you look at the future of the Labour Party, both in terms of the individuals who might lead the party and what the strategy can be for trying to hold together the coalition that it has retained and and in some sense built um, with trying to win back the seats that have been lost in this uh, in this general election and I think that that those who want to say well you kind of go back to the center ground sort of the the Tony Blair solution I think they're missing something quite important I think they're missing both the fact that people like Blair played their part in this by their by in Labour's defeat by their unwillingness essentially to accept the referendum result but I also think that momentum and not just momentum as an organization but the younger voters who've been drawn to the the Labour project do represent coalition of voters that simply isn't going to go away. I can see that in terms of the the students that I teach and the students I keep in touch with after they um, graduate. I mean, they're pretty relentlessly, uniformly committed to this kind of Labour politics and that they they are, from their point of view, from pretty good reasons because they have been to university, they have a set of material expectations that comes from having been to university and the world isn't friendly to them in any way whatsoever. They're carrying they're carrying a lot of debt. They're shut out of the housing market. Rents, you know, very very particularly in a city like 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 London's, um, taking up far too much of their uh, income. They regard climate change as an urgent priority and are not happy with sort of what they see as sort of piecemeal ad hoc um, responses to that. And I I can't see a politics where they're just going to shut up. And neither should they. I've always thought that the left works when there's a sort of alliance between the university educated and the working mm. class and that it, from what you're saying, it doesn't look like that alliance is going to be any easier going forward from where we are now. No, and I think as well, I think that the, the, my sense is, is that if you like the university educated part of it is generationally divided. So you have, if you like, the well, our generation to some extent, who I'm sure would be much happier with, or at least I'm, I'm overly generalising from people I know, but I can certain, see a certain constituency for, say, Keir Starmer being the leader, that they're the, the people who've been out on the... the Labour voters who've been out on the people's vote um, so demonstrations. So Islington to Euston or yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Keir Starmer would be what they want. But I can't see that being appealing to the, the young activists who've been you know like slogging their guts out around the streets of the country in this through this um winter uh, as as to what the future of the the labor party uh, is so and and they are 
they are both graduate coalitions. So it's not even that it's just you've yes. got the working class voters and, and Labour's graduate classes. The graduate class, I think, is generally, the, sorry, the graduate coalition of voters is generationally divided. Matthew Goodwin keeps on talking uh, about what the Boris Johnson victory shows is that the sort of the key to electoral success is to move a little bit to the left on economics and a little bit to the right on cultural identity, mm. nationalism, all that sort of stuff. Does that seem, as a, as a sort of electoral formula, does that seem a correct analysis to you? Not quite. I mean, I'm not quite really sure that it puts the Labour Party back, back together. together. <laughs> back together. Uh, because aside from anything else, I think that there, you know, there is now quite a consistency of Labour voters who are you know, just deeply, deeply resistant to any idea of moving to the, to the, uh, to the right on cultural issues they they couldn't see the point of the labor party if it were to do that and then you might also say well what do you do if that's what the conservatives are doing because i do think the conservatives are moving economically to the left so and i would also say that i think that it's a little bit complacent i think in terms of the difficulties that we're going to face in the future uh, to think that we can just reduce politics to an economic question and a cultural question. I mean, I think we, are, we have a profound constitutional question. It's partly because the last few years have demonstrated how hollowed out our constitution is, but we're also facing a constitutional crisis over the union. So this politics has got to say something to that. And I would say it's, it's got to have something to say about the fact that the, the geopolitical world is splintering and that this question of like, well, what is the relationship between the United States and the European countries going to be is going to be a a fairly important part of politics in the future. So if if we just think about it in terms of of this economic versus cultural dimension, then we're missing, I think, things that are going to have a really big impact. Fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much, Charles. (laughs) Thank you, Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions